0: It's my pleasure to um, introduce Anthony King today, who is a, a Professor of Sociology at the University of Exeter, and uh, this year is a, a visitor of uh, also, so he'll be around Oxford uh, this year. Working on on a new book, or? Yeah, well. we fortunately finished the book, the book so we're finished, working so on another book, on another on book another hopefully, another okay. at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> His research is um, is concerned with so, with very broadly speaking social change uh, in Europe. Um, it takes a, um, a more or less anthropological approach, I think, um, and lots of attention to institutional transformations. Um, he has a keen interest in theory and written a book, published a book about that, um, uh, on well, critical of the of the kind of approach that, that sees. Uh, Structural agency, as there's the two elements to um, uh, to think about social processes. Um, and substantively his interests are in sports, football especially, um, and the military. Uh, and maybe he'll explain today that, that those two aren't as different maybe as, as we, we might think. In, in the 90s and early 2000s he worked on um, on football and how football has changed, how it's become um, a, a transnational business and thing, and, and, and and structures have changed and what that means for, for, the, for, for fans, for instance, and for the for the game itself. Um, and now is working on, <coughs> uh, more recently has been working on and still is working on uh, the military and the military in, in Europe and the big changes um, in the last few over the last few uh, decades. And that's also the topic of today's talk. So we'll have about 45 minutes, something like that. Um, um, and then we'll have time for that's great,
1: th- th- thanks for that thanks very much Christian for that uh, and thanks for um, being here and thanks for letting me speak to you um, well I-, I won't talk too much I can talk in questions about the connections between sport and my military work happy to do that but uh, what I thought I'd do today is uh, g- g- give this talk about uh, the combat soldier and this uh, talk is really a um, kind of condensation uh, of uh, the book that I've been working on over the last couple of years and in fact Although, ostensibly, I was meant to be finishing it while I was at All Souls. In fact, I finished it, uh, and I've just done the proofs, and it's going to be out in January uh, 2013 uh, uh, with Oxford. I'm going, to, I'm going to publish it, and I've been very... Professional about about their uh, their publishing scheme. So it's coming out in, in January, and uh, the book itself, *The Combat Soldier*, is itself uh, based on work I did, which, as Christian rightly says, uh, on European military uh, transformation, which was a piece of kind of I call it kind of institutional interactional study of military transformations in Europe since the, really since the end of the uh, Cold War. And this study of um, of infantry tactics and specifically the question of cohesion emerged out of that uh, prior study and indeed there's a chapter uh, in that book from which this latest book basically comes and as I say what I want to try and do today is to communicate uh, the central kind of thesis uh, of this book that I've just uh, just finished uh, hopefully it, even those of you who aren't interested uh, in the military will have some resonances with the kinds of work uh, that you uh, do. Um, Okay, so um, uh, let me start. Um, well, 1948, uh, Morris Janowitz and Edward Shields published a famous uh, uh, piece uh, called Cohesion and Disintegration in the Wehrmacht in World War uh, II. Uh, and Janowitz and Shields uh, had been struck. They themselves were US. Uh, military officers. They both served in the Intelligence Corps uh, during the uh, uh, Second World War before returning to graduate studies after the war. Uh, They were struck, like many scholars and indeed like many soldiers, uh, especially those on the receiving end, uh, of the effectiveness uh, of the German forces in the Second World War, and particularly uh, the Wehrmacht, the German Army, the German Armed Forces. Um, And what Janowitz and Schill's, like many Uh, other observers noted, uh, was that even after 1942, even after 1944, Uh, when the strategic situation was completely hopeless uh, for Germany uh, and any rational uh, uh, army would have given up and surrendered immediately, uh, the Wehrmacht kept on fighting, and they kept fighting right till the very end, right into the heartland of Germany, uh, before they finally uh, capitulated. And uh, Janowitz and Schills, I think rightly, um, and I would advocate it as an appropriate sociological method, rightly was struck by this, this, this strange historical fact of of an extraordinary military performance. Say what you like about the appalling ethics uh, of the Wehrmacht and its appalling uh, uh, collusion in the massacre of civilians and and Jews, but on the military front, in terms of their battlefield performance, it it, it was or seemed to be uh, a a remarkable uh, achievement. And and they had this word, it showed extraordinary tenacity. Well, We are just at the end, or nearing the end, uh, of a war in Afghanistan that started in 2001, a a 13-year campaign. Western troops we've drawn out by 2014, probably earlier, but certainly by December 2014 there will be no conventional Western combat troops in Afghanistan. And I would suggest to you that uh, the ending of this conflict uh, provides an opportunity in which we might uh, ask the same question again which animated Yanovitz and Schills uh, in 1945 to 1948. Namely, how do we explain the extraordinary combat performance, the extraordinary tenacity demonstrated by Western combat troops in both Afghanistan and Iraq? And and let me just emphasise this. Um, Certainly... Uh, Western troops have been in Iraq and Afghanistan have been hugely uh, uh, um, advantaged by total air superiority and by evident technological uh, 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 benefits over uh, the insurgents they face. Uh, But the fact is, if you look down into the archive of uh, combat reports, into the archive of of battlefield activity, um, infantry troops at the smallest unit uh, have sustained themselves and sustained their cohesiveness whatever the pressure which has been put under them, even if they're fighting uh, in uncertain and indeed disadvantageous positions when they've been ambushed, when they don't have air cover, when they don't have artillery support. Uh, the performance at the level uh, of the combat soldier has been extraordinary uh, over the last decade. And to emphasise, this is notwithstanding any criticism that we might want to make about the legitimacy of these campaigns, the legitimacy of the armed forces, not in any way whitewashing uh, some of the abuses or atrocities that professional soldiers soldiers have been involved in, although footnote, they are very much significantly less than any citizen uh, army was involved in in the 20th century Uh, but at the pure level of the small combat unit, the platoon and the squad or section, the group of soldiers from between about 10 and 40 individuals uh, the performance level has been widely regarded and it's widely evident to be extraordinary in the way that the Wehrmacht performance uh, was extraordinary and all I wanted to do in this book and all I want to try and do to Do today is to try and uh, put forward uh, some explanations, some sociological explanations for that performance. So, my first question is, as I say, is how do you explain the tenacity of Western combat troops and especially UK, US, Canadian, and Australian combat troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, especially in Afghanistan? Um, But also, how do you explain the difference between their performance? and the general performance of the citizen army in the 20th century, in the major wars from 1914 uh, to 1973. Because, as I'm about to say, the actual performance of the citizen army in that period, in those major wars, First and Second World War, Korea and Vietnam, is hugely problematic, and is differentiated from the professional performance uh, quite uh, dramatically. Now, if we are to... Uh, begin to answer this question of combat performance. We need some broadly coherent account of how the citizen infantry performed. How those small groups of citizen soldiers, the platoon of 30 to 40 people, or the squad of section, about 10 people, performed in combat. And there's a number of resources we could go to. However... There is one that seems to me to be particularly uh, useful, and that is uh, SLA Marshall, Samuel uh, Lyman Atwood Marshall, uh, 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 who was uh, a military officer from 1918 uh, to after uh, the Second World War. And in the Second World War, he served as an official uh, US Army historian. He went on to cover uh, Korea and Vietnam as a historian and as a uh, journalist. In other words, In the body of uh, SLA Marshall, uh, you have an individual who personally uh, witnessed and recorded three of the four major citizen wars of the 20th century. He, he, he was commissioned into the uh, First World War right at the end of the war and didn't actually see combat but he was, he was witnessed and recorded uh, three out of the four uh, combats uh, and particularly recorded uh, uh, warfare at the lowest level. He wasn't interested in strategy he was interested in what he called the schoolyard fight of actual uh, combat and battlefield performance. Now. So, I would suggest he's an interesting uh, resource. And what's interesting, and I'm sure you all know it, his famous book, uh, Men Against Fire, published just after the um, uh, Second World War, he made this claim that's, that's really made his name, which is basically uh, uh, the citizen army, the citizen US army, only one in four riflemen ever fired their weapon uh, in, in combat. When they're in combat, only one in four ever fired it. And it's an interesting figure, both because his standard of what constituted firing a weapon uh, was pretty low. If you fired your weapon once Even if you had no intention or no ability To actually hit anyone That constituted a firing And so the one in four figure was uh, Particularly, you know, it caused some significant consternation uh, amongst uh, uh, senior officers and indeed uh, among the political authorities uh, in the u.s both during the second world war and then afterwards when he published publicized uh, the findings and and just to emphasize i mean marshall was a he's a military officer he's a historian military historian but actually hes quite a good sociologist and one of his main arguments of why uh, soldiers failed to fire was that they found themselves uh, paradoxically in a situation of isolation in the modern battlefield the modern battlefield of the 20th century, you've got hundreds of thousands of troops on it, but the experience of the infantrymen is total isolation, because everyone just lies down, uh, you can't see anyone, the enemy's hidden, you can't see anything. And in that sense of social isolation... Uh, the uh, individual infantry uh, soldier uh, was um, a, a sort of inertia, a totally understandable inertia came over them. They felt isolated, they felt terrified uh, by the fire around them, and they refused to take part uh, in the action. And it's an interesting um, uh, account, an interesting sociological account. Now, I'm not going to go into this, but this is just references if you want to follow this up. Huge methodological debates, and basically the, the general consensus in the 1990s is that Marshall was a liar uh, and a self-promotionalist he made it all up, there's no such thing riflemen in citizen's armies performed brilliantly, uh, he was just trying to show off uh, and his evidence was completely uh, pr- concocted and brewed up um, again, I'm not going to talk uh, about this at any length uh, but if you're interested this is the case study from which he generated his one in four figure originally, the Mackin Islands uh, in, on, in November 1943 particularly from a fight that occurred here uh, on a night uh, on the night of the 22nd and 23rd uh, of November in which two companies uh, of US infantry basically did nothing to stop a Japanese assault which the machine guns of the two companies uh, stopped on their own and the result is that hardly anyone fired except for the machine guns anyway that's, that's where the information comes from <coughs> what I'd also say in my defence and you know I've provided defence hopefully a much longer defence yeah a very long defence in fact to Marshall but if you look at senior generals in the US army at that time they completely corroborate Marshall's findings And Lucian Truscott was a general Who fought up through, uh, through Italy in the, um, in the Second World War And he found exactly the same thing with his divisions uh, They were prone to panic uh, The infantrymen never fired They relied on the artillery uh, He was hugely disappointed by their performance Patton sat found the same thing Hugely disappointed uh, by the de- performance uh, Of the infantrymen in, And is an infantryman at that point um, in, in combat And indeed the organisation. Uh, army ground forces which generated infantry soldiers and generated recruits and training and organised training for the US Army was equally concerned basically they thought the combat performance uh, of the infantry soldier was hopeless uh, and, and was a, represented a massive crisis uh, for the army so essentially uh, what I suggest to you is that notwithstanding the uh, very important critiques of Marshall made especially in the 1990s and through into the last early, 20, uh, early 2000s um, His general position on the underperformance uh, of the citizen army uh, is, I would suggest to you, valid. Now, Marshall's important because of that. One of the crucial things that Marshall showed, and I think is his most important finding, uh, is something I would call the mass uh, individual uh, dialectic. And this is the following. That, yes, overwhelmingly, riflemen performed poorly in the Second World War. However... Periodically, individual riflemen were extraordinarily active, uh, and indeed, we might say, extraordinarily heroic. Uh, and we find this pattern uh, recurrently through Marshall's work and through the work of other uh, or, or, or other uh, observers. One of the most famous examples uh, is uh, a, a sergeant in the uh, 101st Airborne who on D-Day single-handedly cleared out an entire uh, German barracks while one, some of his soldiers, uh, Marshall records it, some of his soldiers sat in a sort of ditch nearby reluctantly responding to orders and he literally cleared out the entire uh, German barracks himself. Uh, but this is one of the This is probably the most famous example he draws from. This figure here, uh, this individual, uh, and this photo is worth worth a significant number of words uh, because it's so absurd. Uh, but this figure here is, is Lieutenant uh, Colonel uh, Robert Cole, who was uh, the commanding officer of the three, 3 Battalion, uh, 502 uh, Parachute Infantry Regiment. Uh, and this is a, a picture of him charging the Carenton Causeway on the 11th uh, of June. The picture, is, as I will show, is completely fraudulent. It's completely mythological. Uh, but Cole was someone that Marshall interviewed at length after the Normandy uh, campaign, and actually soon after uh, this action, Cole Cole was eventually killed in Holland in September. Um, But uh, Marshall interviewed him that summer before before his uh, death in Holland, Uh, and, and Cole was an important individual. Now, this... The bayonet charge and the actions around it are quite interesting in illustrating uh, what happened. Uh, because to emphasise, I this picture shows this sort of mass citizen army. You know, all you know, you can read everything into it. But actually, uh, something quite different happened. The, 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 his tank came down this road and came under fire from a farmhouse about here. Um, and then, and what effectively happened is that nobody returned fire. His, his soldiers all hid on the far side of the causeway And, and Cole and they, Remember these are elite paratroopers Who supposedly had the best training of anyone in the US Army And Marshall thinks it was the best battalion in the US Army um, They did nothing They just sat there on the other side of the, of, of the road And then eventually what Cole did Was that he himself said Right we're going to do a bayonet charge And he just got up fixed and ran off And some of his men followed him some. Very small numbers, in fact, and the, the charge was over here. These fields here, and they cleared out the American position. It's become this mythical thing, and American military history has become a mythical event. But what's interesting, what is what Cole said about it, and these were his quotes. Basically, nobody would fire their weapon at these mis- German uh, machine guns. Now, what's also interesting is that you know he, he was personally trying to get everyone you know spark plug the whole operation through his individual heroism, and eventually he said, right, let's charge. And as I say, he individually stood up. His executive officer followed him, and then some, some of his troops uh, followed him. And it, in the official history, it says about a quarter. Marshall thinks about 40 to 50 soldiers of a, of a battalion, 250 men, actually followed him on this charge. So, what you see there, I think, beautifully in the Cole example, is exactly what Marshall is talking about the dialectic of mass and individual, i.e., certain individuals are hugely active, and we might even want to use the word heroic, while the huge majority of riflemen, citizen riflemen, basically contribute nothing uh, to combat. Now, um, uh, what I'd suggest is, I'm not going to talk about this here, but I I would suggest this this dynamic, this dialectic is borne out, and especially this poor level of performance is borne out across citizen armies from the First World War right through to Vietnam including the Wehrmacht. I don't believe the myth about the Wehrmacht being a superb force in any way. They, they suffered precisely uh, the same kind of problems that was with the attended uh, Western uh, Allied armies. Um, and the key point here is, I think, to notice the way in which this pattern uh, 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 plays out. Yes, the First World War, the Western Front, was a very different environment uh, from the jungles uh, of Vietnam. But what I suggest is you see a compatible uh, dialectic of individual and mass throughout this period. And indeed it has some interesting sociological pe- features. Typically, and I'd say almost always, it's not it, the, the individual is not some random individual. The individual is a person, a soldier, who has been officially recognised by the army and by his platoon, to be a leader, to be an important uh, individual within that unit, bearing moral responsibility to that unit. So what you find recurrently are junior non-commissioned officers or junior officers taking this role that Cole did on the uh, Carenton Causeway, jumping up under fire and assaulting uh, an enemy position, of, of providing the initiative when the martial Effect, the slam effect, as Randall Collins calls it, um, kicks into play, inducing inertia in the mass ranks of the citizen army. And as I say, it's typically someone recognised, morally identified, before and during uh, the operation as bearing a special responsibility uh, for the unit. And note this, this then creates a, a genuine dialectic. Namely, the passivity of the mass demands that some individual will act and typically that individual is a recognised um, uh, individual bearing moral responsibility. But of course the point is, the very fact that soldiers recognise and expect an individual combat leader to take the lead means that their passivity is completely justified. And so the two elements of the citizens' army performance seem to me to be organically, internally related. A force which relies on uh, junior leaders to fight also is a force which will be characterised by mass uh, passivity by the, uh, 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 by the majority. So, in short, uh, to conclude, uh, what I would suggest you find uh, in the citizen army from 1914 uh, to 1973 uh, is essentially a a, a phenomenon of underperformance mitigated by the use of individual initiative, in in brackets, in inverted commas, heroism, perhaps you might want to call it, uh, to overcome uh, that inertia, which is sort of organic to the citizen force. Now... (laughs) Where does this leave us in terms of uh, uh, the professional army of today, of the 21st century? Well, elements of the citizen army... Of the 20th century were professional. There was a small cadre of professional non-commissioned officers and of officers, especially at uh, senior rank. But those forces, the number of professionals, were hugely, um, you know, infinitesimally small in comparison with the conscripts or volunteers who populated uh, the mass forces of those uh, campaigns. Well, we are approaching a new era now—a quite profoundly new era, in my, uh, in my opinion. Uh, It's certainly, uh, uh, we can trace uh, the the emergence of professionalisation back to the Second World War. Canada professionalised the minute the Second World War ended, they demobilised their their citizen force and turned to professional forces. The other Western uh, forces followed uh, subsequently, Germany notably the last uh, to do so. Um, Now, there's some very important work on the professional army, Huntington, Huntington. Yanovitz, Professional Soldier 1960, and of course Moskos' uh, work. Um, and these are important work, works and very useful at a certain point. Uh, but there's two shortcomings. Firstly, uh, Huntington, Yanovitz and Moskos are not interested in the small group. They are not interested in small group combat or small group interaction. They are thinking about professionalism at the organisational level and they are particularly interested in civil-military relations. Um, and in certain points, actually, Moscow being a case in point, I don't think their account of professionalism is adequate. Indeed, I think Moscow is actually fundamentally wrong at certain points. Uh, and what I'd suggest is this that professionalisation certainly involves a very significant uh, reformation of civil military relations, of the relationship between government and state and the armed forces as an institution. Undoubtedly true. What I'd also suggest to you, and this is what I'm going to talk about in the rest of the talk, is that at the level, the smallest level, you know, the elementary cellule of, the mi- of military life, you know, the platoon uh, and or section, uh, professionalisation, I would suggest to you, uh, generates a quite different associational dynamics... And also a quite different kind of combat performance uh, in the current era. And that's what I want to talk about uh, in the last bit of the talk. Now, just to, just to qualify this so I, I don't get sort of, um, you know, so I'm not misunderstood, so I don't, uh, uh, I'm not accused of some kind of idealisation. Citizen armies could periodically perform extremely well in combat. Sometimes the martial effect, uh, the slam effect did not happen. Sometimes there was not inertia. Um, sometimes they performed extremely well. And there's loads of examples in the First World War right through to Vietnam of excellent uh, performance by uh, citizen uh, armies. Normally, when the personnel were stable enough and trained enough to be able to generate uh, performances. The other thing to note is that very early on, uh, and I would say no later than 1917 and probably 1916, all Western belligerents on the First World War had recognised the need for modern infantry tactics. It's not for kind of mass bayonet shells, you know, what we associate with uh, with the assault on the Somme on the 1st of July, but actually complicated uh, manoeuvres of small units. And this, this is a, fo- uh, a plate, a fo- uh, kind of not, an engraving uh, from British infantry doctrine uh, in 1917 and what you'll see is exactly uh, what most scholars would most uh, Practitioners would argue is modern modern infantry tactics, namely the dispensing of kind of Napoleonic lines and mass for dispersal of troops into small squads and platoons who mutually move around the battlefield by firing uh, while the other manoeuvres. And uh, if you look at Stephen Biddle, I think he's very very good on this in his 2004 book. So. Uh, there is a long evidence of performance and also recognition of the need uh, of modern tactics. But the fact is uh, that citizen armies was, were not trained enough uh, to be able to perform uh, those tactics on anything other than exceptional occasions. So this brings me to the uh, uh, professional army. Um, and the question of the performance of the professional army. Now, there's lots of dimensions to this and I just want to focus really on one uh, which is as I said here, is battle drills. Uh, the notion uh, of the battle drill. As I say, there's lots of elements uh, of expertise associated with uh, professional infantry which is not uh, uh, subsumable under the category of battle drill, but battle drill has an extremely useful, as I hope I will show, um, a useful uh, a way of exemplifying some of the procedures, uh, some of the practices of professional force uh, in contemporary conflict. And practices which have been utilised and are utilised in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is this is a this is a, the, the um, America, some of the American infantry doctrine. Uh, but what they focus on, tactics, is, is drills. Uh, a central element of the performance uh, of the professional army uh, in the last 10, 15 years has been its institutionalisation of battlefields of set. Forms of choreography, set forms of social practice, which are recurrently reproduced and executed uh, by platoons and, uh, and squads in combat, almost automatically. So, what are these drills? Well, look here's a here's an example from another uh, from another uh, piece of U.S. doctrine. Essentially, uh, they're a set of standardised procedures <laughs> which which soldiers individually and collectively are taught to follow. In response to certain situations, and this is a response uh, to being fired at by the enemy. A response to contact. uh, The uh, a a particular battle drill uh, is uh, identified and followed by this American squad of 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 two fire teams and its commander. So, got two groups here, and basically what they do is uh, one of them fires, the other moves, the other fires, the other one moves, until they have eliminated the enemy and taken over uh, the position. But the key thing is um, the. Drill is a standardised set of practices. What's the sta- why is the standardisation important? It is to eliminate two things. One, individual deviancy and idiosyncrasy on a battlefield it's very important the, most, the, the best way of potentially surviving is everybody does the same thing or everyone does actions which mutually support each other and therefore standardisation is very important uh, to the armed forces that everybody does the same thing we don't get people uh, doing different things people stay together and do uh, the same thing so standardisation uh, is extremely important, standardisation also means speed of reaction which is a critical uh, function uh, in any combat uh, situation that you need to be able to c- collectively, and that's the important thing. It's easy to respond individually very quickly. If a plane's on fire, pretty easy to make the doorway on your own. Try doing it with four or five people. Suddenly, once you get the collective active action problem, standardised procedures become hugely important to generate coordination. Second point about uh, battle tools. Um, in comparison with... The doctrine of the citizen army of the 20th century, uh, contemporary infantry doctrine, uh, shows actually a quite extraordinary level of refinement and detail. Uh, and this is this is a you don't need to read all this. This is a, but this is how uh, this is the description of how. Um, a squad and fire team uh, clear a trench. And I just—I point to you to this bit here. Um, that when they eventually throw the grenades into the trench, the two soldiers roll into the trench and facing backwards. They're actually instructed to face backwards, back to back. So they're in a trench, and one's pointing his weapon that way, and the other one's pointing his weapon that way. Note how much combat experience it would be required to. Unrecognise the need to do that because, of course, if you both face in one way, it's pretty obvious that someone could come up behind you and shoot you in a trench. So, uh, what I would suggest is that this refinement is not some kind of OTOs um, uh, product of people who are spending a lot of time in headquarters writing things that don't matter. There's a hell of a lot going of, of that going on in the military, I can promise you, uh, but that it, it institutionalises. Experiences which have been uh, enacted by combat veterans. In other words, what the development of more refined, professionalised doctrine enables you to do is to effectively accelerate the learning of even a junior soldier, that they, they become kind of combat veterans. By dint of learning the institutionalised drill, they learn stuff which citizen soldiers would o- almost overwhelmingly have had to learn for themselves, and of course only learn when they had done it three times and five of their friends had been killed doing it before they'd actually learn uh, what to uh, what to what to do. Um, so there is a refinement of procedures which are taught and executed recurrently uh, in uh, training. Now, just to emphasise, sure. Uh, this is doctrine you know back here is doctrine. this is what what they, uh, the ideal uh, form of training uh, is this is what they 're trying to achieve. but interestingly, uh, what we find in examples from Iraq and Afghanistan is actually these drills, these set drills, which people are taught to instinctively um, uh, execute individually and collectively are actually evidenced in real life and this is an example uh, this account, Brian McCoy was a colonel of 3-4 uh, marines in Iraq during the Eurasia invasion of Iraq and as they, the, the marine division drove up highway 1 and went over a bridge and then was, were, were, um, drove along the side of the Tigris. And on the 3rd of April they were captured, uh, caught in an ambush in which the Iraqi forces uh, had organised themselves uh, between the road and the Tigris River. And it was a very significant uh, Iraqi force. There was a couple of tanks, there was quite a few armoured vehicles. So it was a very significant force. And, you know, your normal, uh, your normal expectation in such a combat of where actually the Marines, especially initially, were, out, were, were, were um, outnumbered and outgunned. You would expect in an ambush, well, essentially, uh, you know, professional military would expect it would not go that well for you. Uh, and what's interesting about this event, and it's become quite a famous one um, in the Marines, uh, is that... Um, 3 4 effectively executed a counter ambush drill and they drove some amphibious armoured vehicles, basically armoured cars, up into the ambush site. The soldiers debussed, and as this Uh, description shows, they just rolled into, the soldiers who debussed just rolled into their anti-ambush drill and they fought their way through uh, the date Palms and through the positions where the Iraqis were uh, and clearing the position and and they came out, actually what should have been a catastrophic defeat, ended up as kind of a a victory which of course the US Marines have been none too modest in in communicating to everyone Uh, but the key point uh, which McCoy made is that the drill was a central reason for their success. There's no requirement for orders, there was no requirement for coordination, uh, there was no requirement for somehow developing things indi- individually and independently. The soldiers just, who had been very heavily chained, or the Marines had been very heavily chained, simply rolled into their anti-ambush uh, drill and executed that anti-ambush drill uh, without thinking about it. The result is, uh, according to McCoy, and I think it's plausible if you look at the case, uh, that it was those training the drills that were critical uh, to the performance. If you compare that with the num- with ambushes that citizen soldiers uh, uh, suffered, especially in places like Vietnam, the result was very, very different. Um, now, the drills um, that have been institutionalised represent a change of practice, but I think there's some very important and very interesting other sociological uh, dimensions to these drills, and one is at the level of collective uh, understanding. Um, and you know we as sociologists uh, we're very familiar uh, with this with this issue with the importance uh, of collective understanding in terms of social action you know weber talked about subjective meaning in economy and society uh, talcott parsons the idea of collective norms uh, is essential uh, and of course uh, garfinkel um, garfinkel's ethnomethodological project was um, very substantially predicated on demonstrating the utter centrality of collective uh, understandings of, of collective definitions uh, to uh, social life, and as this quote shows, I mean the point is this: um, it's not that the accounts that we put on social life just describe what will go on anyway. It's that the accounts that we put on social life actually constitute the situation as we are engaged in it, and that we ourselves generate stable social situations by ascribing, you know, collectively ascribing meaning to what we are doing. So, in any interaction, as Garfinkel famously showed, um, we are skilfully. Um, and mutually ascribing meaning to that interaction, which gives it its stability, uh, its unity, and its meaning. And also, crucially, it doesn't just constitute uh, the event. So we know, for instance, this is a, this is a talk, or or something. Some other uh, event is us buying a ticket from the uh, railway station. Uh, but that, with those collective definitions, comes certain moral injunctions. Given that you and I have defined a particular event in a particular way, a particular situation, a particular interaction in a particular way, you and I expect each other to behave in a certain way. There is a moral compunction which comes from cognitive uh, definition, collective cognitive definition of a situation. And, of course, I think Garfink was brilliant on it with breaching experiments. Now, what I suggest to you here is the the drill is interesting. It is interesting in a practical sense. But what I'd suggest to you may be even more interesting is that what is a collective action, a drill, becomes also a kind of collective representation for soldiers, for professional soldiers. Namely, it is not just they execute drills that they are trained to execute. The drill changes the way that they understand combat. And what I'd suggest to you, it it enables them to collectively define and actually collectively constitute the combat situation in a different way than the citizen army. Uh, you know, this, if you look back over the sort of literary record The Citizen Army constantly sees, the, sees Combat as, as chaos As, as, as madness I mean, Junger, Ernst Jünger talks about the Western Front As the red hot chambers of dread There's these kind of literary uh, messages. No doubt combat if you're involved in it Is, is horrible uh, and chaotic And hellish but what I'd suggest To you is the professional drill Creates an order, a collective order A collective definition to that combat To which a set of actions and expectations uh, are attached. And here's just some evidence, just some evidence to try and show this, that if you look at military, contemporary military doctrine, um, the importance of collective definitions and their universalisation across the armed forces is emphasised recurrently. And I would suggest to you it's emphasised recurrently so that the situations in which Western forces find themselves have already been defined for them uh, by their military institutions, ensuring particular kinds of understanding and particular kinds of reaction uh, to it. And let me try and uh, uh, give, me, give you a little bit of evidence, a little bit more evidence of that. This, this is a quote from the previous um, quote from McCoy, but I put it here, just I re-emphasise it here. This seems to be a, a quote of... Really unacknowledged importance. Um, you know, all they know is that this is a contact right, and this is what we do in a contact right. Uh, in other words, before those marines had even got out of their armored vehicle, so you imagine they're sitting in the armored vehicle, they're hearing on the radio, right? We've got a contact. There's an ambush, and they'll be they'll hear gunfire, and they'll no doubt hear rounds pinging off their, their vehicle. I mean, you know, that's the situation in which they were. But what what McCoy says is that they they simply go, this is a contact right. And they all go, this is a contact right. Contact right means we're getting fired out from over there. And the, once that definition, this is a contact right, a collective definition has happened, a set of procedures is expected and demanded of every single member of that squad. A note, in fact, very few instructions. Need to be given at this point. If they've been trained well enough, they know it's a contact right, in a contact right, this is what we do. And indeed, what McCoy notes is they, they jump out of the back of the wagon and engage in, in, the, in the set procedures of, of counter ambush. Now, interesting note here, as an individual, it doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the risks you're running are. You just simply click into a collective drill. A collect- you've collectively defined it as a contact right. It, exp- it, it you, it's demands of you a particular uh, set of procedures. And note whether it puts you at risk or not. And indeed, in this uh, counter-ambush, one marine uh, was killed and several were wounded. But having defined it in that coll- way, in that sort of Gar- Garfinkelian way, as an account, this is a contact right. This is the. This is the. This is what the situation is. It is not up to the individual to decide what to do. There is a moral expectation, a moral and professional expectation, that they follow a set drill, whether that means their own death or their own wounding. That the drill, the collective drill, is primary over their own individual uh, interests. Now, let me just give you one more example of this, which I, I think is a really useful example, which is a on the 27th. Sorry, 25th of August uh, October uh, 2007 This is a very famous event Partially uh, because one of the soldiers In this event uh, was the, was awarded A Congressional uh, Medal of Honor He is the only living recipient Basically normally you've got to die to get It's like a VC in England you basically normally got to die uh, to get awarded it He is the only living recipient What effectively happened is that a squad of Paratroopers walking on a ridge in eastern Afghanistan. Uh, They were fired upon by by about 30 insurgents uh, to the left and to the front of them. They were caught in a in an ambush. The incident is very useful because there were no there was no other forces involved. There was no attack helicopters, there were no drones, there was no artillery, it was a a sort of one-on-one fight, as near as possible you get to an equal fight, and it was a full moon so that uh, the night night vision goggles that US troops uh, are equipped with they were useless as well. So it was really a useful example of of of, 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 a, of a fight of 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 genuine equality. And effectively what happened? Uh, the paratroopers um, responded very quickly and conducted a counter ambush and actually defeated the insurgents. And they got a couple of injuries, but no one uh, no one was uh, killed. And what was interesting uh, about this event um, is the way in which it subsequently was defined. This is the uh, this is the words of Salguinete who was the soldier who was awarded uh, the Congressional Medal of, fire, uh, of, of Honor and you'll notice that uh, what he described when, he, when they came under fire um, uh, was was I would suggest to you exactly in line with this Carfinkelian uh, account giving, namely that the incident was not defined by him as some kind of heroic response. You know, contrast that uh, with Cole's action, where he was running around telling everyone what to do. Uh, but rather, uh, Gyunsa and his colleagues uh, confronted and saw themselves as confronted with a t- tactical conundrum which required a set uh, series of responses to it. And their responses were quite interesting, because they, they, the record is they came under fire Within about 10, 15 seconds of coming under fire, they responded uh, by together, these two colleagues, Gunther and his colleague, running forward and throwing grenades forward as they uh, ran forward. And uh, in fact, this, I won't go into it now, but the selection of grenades on that particular fight was an interesting and not automatic one, but it was actually the best one uh, that they could have made. And what I'd suggest to you is that what you see in Gunther's uh, statement is precisely this. Um, this. You know, representational, this accountable uh, basis of the the battle drill, that it becomes uh, a means of defining and constituting uh, the battle situation for the soldier uh, and, and therefore demanding certain kinds of performances. And the crucial point is here, this isn't a matter for the individual. It is a collective definition. And the instinct of the professional soldier is to draw collectively on these accounts and to enjoin... Joint action with their fellow colleagues on the basis of them, and this this is the significance of this uh, later bit here. You know that uh, I walk around, see what I can do, and maybe we could hide under the same rock and shoot together. There's this instinctive horizontal um, uh, attention to colleagues left and right to participate in joint action. In other words, uh, the uh, generation of the institution of battle drills has had a kind of cognitive uh, an effect on the shared understandings of uh, soldiers, even in uh, the extremity of combat. And note, in combat what we have is a situation there where it is most easy for accounts you know, golfing, cleaning accounts to break down, because it is so frightening and so confusing. But, if you want coordinated social practice it is absolutely requisite that you generate these common accounts. So uh, combat represents this, I think, a beautiful kind of sociological type uh, because it's uh, an environment where it's most difficult to utilise collective definitions but where they are utterly essential if you want coherent uh, combat performance. My final point in terms of of cohesion. Um, uh, It's become a standard issue in in the literature on the armed forces to argue... um, that soldiers fight with each other because they are friends. Effectively, uh, people, uh, people are willing to risk themselves, to sacrifice themselves to participate in combat if they are comrades uh, with each other. And typically, um, the sociological literature, from, from Janovich's and Shields onwards, has emphasised, and actually rightly so, the masculine dimension of this. That citizen soldiers drew heavily on the bonds of masculinity to try and generate um, cohesion and combat performance among themselves. And in fact, uh, 1914 through to 1973, there's loads of evidence of it happening, and loads of evidence of it working on the battlefield. Soldiers explicitly and reflexively appealing to each other's manhood to ensure performance. Footnote there is also a lot of evidence that this was an ethnicised manhood as well, and actually heavily white. In fact, pretty much totally white for the First, and Second World War and Korea. Um, so there's a heavy ethnic dimension. But, and I don't dispute, for a Citizen Army, I don't dispute any of those findings. I think they're right. With a professional army, I would suggest to you, you start to get a different kind of cohesion. In other words, <coughs> my argument is this. The battle drill actually generates a different kind of associational dynamic, it generates a different kind of solidarity among professional forces. So what is that solidarity? Well, very quickly, uh, I think uh, uh, um, Junger's book, Sebastian Junger's recent book, War, is quite an interesting insight into this. Now, that war deals with um, some, some paratroopers in eastern Afghanistan. In fact, the very same paratroopers who were involved in the Gatakal ambush uh, in 2007 and 8. And the book is informed by classical definitions of cohesion. I.e., I am willing to fight for my comrade and my friend because I love him, essentially. That's essentially the, the argument of the thing, that our bonds are so strong that I would willingly sacrifice myself rather than look like a coward in front of him. That's Jung's basic argument. What's interesting about Jung's book is that although that's normally the kind of theoretical claim he's trying to make, the actual empirical evidence in his book consistently, and I would say totally, undermines the claim that actually professional solidarity, professional cohesion and performance is based on the notion of you know, I've got it back here. Pure cohesion. Cohesion based on a kind of you know, personal, intersubjective relationship of intimacy. In fact, his book uh, 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 undermines that totally. And here's, here's an example. At one point in the book, Sergeant O'Burns says this. Well, actually, loads of people in the platoon hate each other. You know, it, it absolutely. And, and his book is, tells the story of they're always fighting each other, beating each other up. And yeah, okay. Men have this funny way of showing their affection. Sometimes I accept that, but it is, extreme, it is extraordinary. You know that you have got a group of people who supposedly love each other, and when I say beating each other up, properly beating each other up. You know, not just sort of a bit of, but you know, properly. You know, proper physical assaults on each other. Um, and 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 the, the sergeant sets a paragraph, a paradox. Okay. They actually hate each other up there, so they're up in this point of the horrible outpost where it's the most intense bit of fighting in the whole valley. He so, says, "Yeah, they actually hate each other up up there." Yeah but they still die for each other. How do you explain that paradox if you stand by uh, the classical thesis on military cohesion? It doesn't make any sense. If people are to lay down their lives for each other, they have to love each other on the basis of the classical definition of masculine cohesion. But Sergeant O'Byrne, who's a professional soldier, is saying, no, actually, there's guys up there who straight up hate each other. And yet they would be killed to defend their their colleague. What I suggest is uh, the paradox, uh, this kind of paradox of cohesion is is, uh, resolved if you go back to the battle drill and to the idea of professionalism. Namely, we are comrades with each other, not because we share anything particularly in common, Not because necessarily we even like each other. Uh, We don't need to be the same religion. We don't need to be the same skin colour. We we don't even need to be the same uh, sexuality. We don't need to be from the same part of the country. We can generate combat performance. We can operate together in so far as we are unified around battle drills. In other words, what I suggest you find in the, in the professional army is a very strange form of cohesion, a cohesion based on institutionalised performance, a functional uh, cohesion, uh, a performance based cohesion in which uh, not only is, is, uh, 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 are there set drills of what to do, but there is an expectation that you will do those drills independently of what you personally think of the man or, in fact, woman, and I can happily talk about women in combat as well, um, uh, independently of the soldier next to you, your personal opinion of it. Affection is not required. What is required and where you are judged as a soldier is not whether you're a nice person, not whether we have anything and we like the same music or we have the same background, but whether you can perform certain uh, drills Professionally, and indeed, uh, you know, there's, there's very significant evidence that those soldiers who are incapable of doing these drills are just excluded. they just ex- not because they're not. Maybe even originally they're, they're regarded as nice people as part of the team. The minute they can't can't effect uh, uh, drills in combat, they're excluded uh, from the team. Now, let me just say this: what I suggest to you in terms of this impersonal. Uh, competence-based cohesion that I would suggest has been starting to emerge in professional forces. It, that actually, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan have exe- accentuated uh, the point. Um, and this is a statement from a, 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 a UK sergeant uh, who, run, who, who runs tra- or ran training uh, in Helmand uh, in 2009-10. And, and what he's saying here is, look, um, in Afghanistan. You don't get stable sections, of between. you don't get stable groups of 10 or 40 people, uh, because uh, you get a group of people in a forward operating base who have different uh, specialisms, uh, and you need those different specialists. you need people who are going to interpret, you need medics, you need uh, people who are good with IEDs, you need dog handlers, you need lots of specialists on any operation, any particular operation. You might need different set of people. You might, oh, on this one, you might need a mortar person. You might need someone who can uh, fly in UAVs. So on any operation, on any patrol, there's actually a sort of great turbulence in terms of the um, personnel who are involved in a patrol or an operation, who are who, or who are stationed uh, in a forward operating base. And of course, that special, that turbulence of specialisation is compounded by the turbulence of casualties. So every week. Someone gets ill, or gets hurt, or killed. So that there's, a, there's sort of two spiralling turbulences in the personnel. And what, what the evidence shows, and I'll say this is just one quote. There's many others. Uh, uh, many other soldiers who said the same thing. The, the, what, what is occurring is that it is the individual competence of the soldier which allows them to fuse almost seamlessly into these ad hoc groupings. That they've got a set of skills, those, those, those individual skills, for instance, as an interpreter or as a dog handler, are situated within the wider sort of uh, encyclopedia of military infantry skills. And the, uh, on the basis of those different but interdependent competencies, it's able, you, you, the, the Western forces have been able to generate high levels of cohesion, even in combat, merely by reference to set drills which individuals have been taught to enact. But note, they might have been taught to enact them. Totally different training cycles. They could be two totally different units. And he's learnt drills here, she's learnt drills here. They come together in Afghanistan and the drills are compatible. it's on that basis uh, that you get uh, the, the individual performance. So to emphasise, what it suggests is that what we see in a professionalised military and in a professionalised infantry is the institutionalisation of battle drills, which changes the definition, understanding, and indeed the actual reality of combat for professional troops, and also changes the nature of their solidarity, moving their solidarity from one of purity of comradeship to one of impersonal uh, professional uh, competence. Conclusions. Um, is this borne out anywhere else in the world? Well, in fact, Yeah. If you actually look globally, uh, other forces are increasingly professionalising uh, their, their forces. And, and China's PLA, is, uh, the People's Liberation Army, is very interesting here. China is very interested in the Falklands War, for obvious strategic reasons. Yeah, Amphibious operation on an island some way from the mainland, etc. Et uh, but um, they, uh, they're, what they're very interested in is the British performance in the Falklands, the performance of British infantry soldiers in the, perform- in the Falklands, which they put down to professionalisation and which they are trying to imitate. Final point, towards a professional society, and this may come back to Christian's point about what's the connection between football and, 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 and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, the military's different from us. They are different from us. Um, you, know, they're, they're, you know, they can hurt people, and we're not allowed, very rightly. Um, uh, you know, they have the monopoly of violence, and that has, they're, therefore they're a distinctive profession. But what it suggests is that uh, if you... Uh, look at the trajectory of the move from mass kind of membership and participation to specialized competence competence-based solidarity, I'd suggest that actually uh, there are echoes of that uh, across wider, uh, social, uh, wider social order. Um, I mean, Putnam, you know, obviously in his book Bowling Alone, talks about the destruction of community, of post uh, Second World War communities uh, and the um, evacuation of social capital. What I'd suggest is that actually the concept of professionalism and the kind of professional status group uh, may be one of the ways, only one, but it may be one of the ways by which a globalising transnational society uh, is beginning to uh, reorder itself and to sustain its own cohesion, instead of us uh, being based on uh, memberships of particular organisations of citizens who are all the same in colour, language, religion, etc. that the idea of professional associations and professional Networks uh, concentrated in particular ways but spanning potentially globally and especially uh, transnationally uh, may be actually uh, a, a way in which uh, contemporary globalising society may be able to both transform and maintain its cohesiveness uh, in a quite uh, radically transformed uh, situation. Uh, and I will stop there. Thanks.